It feels good to be up here. The last time I was here was in 2015. So after six years, I know some of you might be wondering if I was still in school back then, but it's just good genes. My mom is here, so I had to say that. Um, okay, we are going to be looking at uh, James 2, verses 1 to 9. So if you have your Bibles, then please open them there. Um, in the meantime, I've got three goals that we're going to look at as we go through this text today. My first goal is that we would understand the issue of partiality or favoritism and how it doesn't fit in with the way of following Jesus. And that's the main issue of the text that we're going to look at. My second goal is that I would guide us all into a deeper understanding of James's key message of faith and what genuine faith... I had a feeling that this Britney Spears mic wasn't going to work today, so let's swap it out. Okay, that's much better. So I want to help us answer the question, do I have faith? Not a general or generic faith that was passed down from our parents, or a faith that comes from watching celebrity passes on TV for entertainment, or a faith that ends in mere words, but rather a deep-rooted and abiding faith. A faith that causes us to give up everything in pursuit of God. A faith that causes us to reorientate our lives, not around the worldly goals of comfort or pleasure or wealth, but around forsaking all for Christ. You're not going to have wasted your life because you didn't go to the gym three times a week, which was your New Year's resolution, but you may just waste your life if you don't live it in complete surrender to God. And as part of delving deeper into what genuine faith looks like, I'm hoping that as we get into the text for this morning, that we would do so with an understanding of the importance of letting God's Word wash over us with authority on a regular basis. I want to move us closer towards feeling and knowing and enjoying God in His Word and to move us closer to a place where God's Word is as real and as needed as the air that we breathe. And so that's my third goal for this morning, that we would leave with a high view of God and His Word and that we would, make, uh, that we would take steps to making reading it a part of our daily lives. And I know from some of the conversations that I've had with us that some of us find it difficult to read the Word of God, unapproachable, and that we therefore don't read it on a regular basis. And so my hope this morning is that as you read the text and as you walk with me and go deep into the meaning of the text, that you would start to see that God's Word is not only approachable but indispensable. One of my aims in preaching is to break down the Word of God. Not so that we can wait until next Sunday before we hear it again, but rather that as you learn more and more about the Scripture, and as you learn more and more about how glorious the words on these pages are, that you would come to feel comfortable to reading them on your own. Throughout the book of James, there is an underlying insinuation that the readers had not listened to God's Word properly. Yes, they may have read the Word, but they certainly hadn't let it penetrate deep into their hearts. Let it not be so with us. If we neglect regular Bible reading, then we negate the power of Scripture to reveal God's truths to us. And so as we read Scripture here today, can we pay attention to the words and to what they say? In the first chapter of James, we've already looked at how we should receive with a gentle spirit the word that was taught. And this was a reminder that we need to see the Scriptures as authoritative and accessible, and that we need to read Scripture with a humble heart, ready to receive from God, Learn about him and how we live in light of his words. And so with all of that in mind, let us start to examine the text for today. James 2 verses 1 to 9. 
My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good, for, a good seat for you, but to the poor man, you stand there or sit here on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated amongst yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of this world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. The first thing that we see is that James calls us not to show favoritism or partiality. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus must not show favoritism. That is, we should not show someone honor or respect due to things about them. Favoritism relates to the different levels of respect that we give to different people based on different things about them. Favoritism is when we pay respect to the outer or outward appearance or circumstances of a person. And so we may favor someone as more worthy who is rich or powerful or born from a well-known family over someone who doesn't have these qualities. By addressing us as believers, James assumes that we hold a true faith. We believe it, we act on it, and we live it. In fact, the whole letter of James, as we've seen in part so far, is geared towards a faith that is in action. James goes to great lengths to show us that faith, that is our belief in Jesus, results in action. And so when he starts by saying believers in a glorious Lord Jesus Christ must not show favoritism, he is saying believers, you have a specific way to live. And that way of living may have been the same or similar to the world in the past, but not anymore. James assumes that when we hold on to a true faith, when we truly believe it, we act on it and we live it out. He doesn't seem to think that there is an option where we can believe the word and then go on living in a way that is persistently contrary to it. The second thing we notice in verse 1 is that James describes Jesus as glorious. He says, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus. Glorious means worthy of all respect and honor. And showing favoritism is giving people honor and respect based on worldly achievements, all of which pale in comparison to Jesus. And so when James says that Jesus is glorious, he is saying he's the only one worthy of glory. And if there is anything in people that we should value, or if there's anything that we should aspire to, then it has to be not based on worldly glory, but on conformity to the glory of Christ. And when we read this command to be impartial, it's important to remember that it's not always easy to live differently to the world. It isn't actually possible to be sustainably impartial if Jesus is not the most beautiful person in this world to you. And so if you want to obey his command to not show favoritism, then ask yourself, do you see the glory of God? Are you in awe of Jesus? 
That's what James is showing us here by addressing him as glorious. And it's not a comparison of who's more deserving of our focus, like Jesus over here and our money just below, or Jesus and his glory over here and our comfort just below. There is an infinite gap between Jesus and everything else in this world. He is completely set apart and the only one deserving of our glory. But showing partiality is so natural in this culture, and so it should take some serious, uh, some serious thinking and changing to our thinking and some serious active striving for us to live differently. And because it's so natural in today's world to show more respect to those who are rich or powerful, we should anticipate that there may be consequences when we treat everyone as, as equal in God. But any possible consequences of not going the way with this world should never deter us because we know that it didn't deter the king of the world. Jesus didn't seek to gain favor with people when he was here on earth, especially not with the rich or the powerful. Rather, he sought to only do the will of God. When the rich young ruler came to Jesus and he asked, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus didn't show partiality by applying any special criteria to him. Rather, he said, Go and sell everything, and then you can follow me. And when Jesus was on trial before the high priests and he was asked to defend himself, he didn't. He could have looked at their worldly ideas of what greatness meant and he could have given in to them, but he didn't. When he was expected to make a great statement in defense of himself in response to their accusations, he kept quiet. Because Jesus didn't believe in changing how he acted based on the worldly characteristics of the people that he dealt with. And so to conclude verse 1, favoritism has no place in the kingdom of God. We're going to move on in the text in verses 2 to 4. We see that we presented it with an example that shows us what favoritism could look like. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you. But to the poor man, you stand there or sit here on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? And so we see an example of a rich man being treated differently from a poor man in the church. And the example that James uses is important. And we should pay attention to the specific choice of rich and poor because it's deliberate. And the example is emphasized elsewhere in James as well as throughout the Bible. It's important because the dangers of wealth are many. And so spe special attention is, is required to reiterate just how dangerous the power of wealth can be to our faith. And this warning is even more important today as we see the growth of wealthy Christianity. Because most of the people in James's church would have been poor, some always having been poor and some having become poor as a result of the extreme persecution because of their faith. But today, Christians tend to be wealthier than ever. And so we start by noticing that we shouldn't show favoritism based on riches or poverty. And we're going to come back to that particular example just now in more detail. But we also have to look at the broader principle that would be not showing favoritism or partiality based on worldly characteristics. And that would extend to race, culture, citizenship, looks, language, education. In other words, partiality shown on whatever grounds does not conform to the life of a Christian. 
And so James is calling us to live out our faith without regards to a person's worldly characteristics. And I think it's important to note that whenever a text calls us to live out our lives differently to the world, such as not showing favoritism, then there may be a few challenges that we face as we try to live out these truths. We're going to look at just two of those. The first challenge is that we sometimes have a very low view of holiness. God tells us in Leviticus, and we receive it repeated in Peter, be holy for I am holy. And we read in Hebrews that without holiness, no one will see the Lord. Jesus says in Matthew 5, after just telling us that we should cut off a hand rather than sin, that we should be perfect because our heavenly Father in heaven is perfect. And so we see that the inescapable reality of being a part of God's family is that his character and his ways become binding on us. And we've already seen this as the underlying theme in James that encourages us to have an integrity in our faith. In other words, a faith that is believed and lived. So imperative to our commitment to being impartial is a commitment to holiness, a commitment to letting God's word reshape our hearts and our desires until they're in line with his. The second challenge is that our, our flesh is deceitful. We've got blind spots. And so we, fit, we tend to find it exceptionally difficult to conduct a thorough review of our hearts and our motives. Not many people going or go around walking around, go around thinking, I'm very selfish. Well, I'm very unkind, and yet the lack of generosity and kindness that we see around us says otherwise. And so we need to remember that it's not as simple as saying, do I show favoritism? No, I think I'm usually fair. No, when I show partiality or favoritism, it's only when it's justified, because that's most likely not an honest response. We need to recognize the deception of our own flesh and put in place measures to keep ourselves in check and ensure that we are living in step with God. And so as we do that, we're going to look at three measures that we see throughout the book of James that help us to do this, that help us to live honest lives that resist the flesh. The first measure that we can put in place is to let God's word wash over us whenever we read it. We've already seen in James 1 that we are told to be doers of the word. That means getting into the habit of allowing God's word to go deep into our souls and reveal what is really there. If the Apostle Paul was able to write that he could not always do what he wanted to do, but sometimes did the very things that he hated, and if I know my own heart and I fall short of living in accordance with God's word regularly, then I'm fairly confident that we all need God's word to cut deep into our flesh and our bones and to reveal our innermost thoughts and values so that we can be driven closer towards God. Reading the word of, of God as authoritative and understanding that it leads to action is a daily practice that can help us stay clear of partiality in our lives. The second measure that we can use to fight partiality or favoritism in our lives is to incorporate accountability through our relationships, whether with our spouse, our friends, or our family. In James chapter 5, we'll see that we are encouraged to confess our sins to one another and to pray for each other. And to do this well, we need people who really know us. People who, are, who we are vulnerable with and who have the courage to speak into our lives. And from the conversations that I've had with many of us, we don't always have these kind of relationships. But I want to encourage us to use the blood-bought vulnerability that Jesus gives us to pursue genuine relationships. Can we die to our pride as we invite others in 
And we admit that we don't have it all together and that we need help in following Jesus. The last measure that we can use to fight sin and partiality or favoritism is to relentlessly pursue God. When we choose sin over God, it's because we are attributing more glory to that sin than to God. We've seen in, in verse 1 that James is calling us to behold Jesus' glory. And we see in other scriptures that we would be foolish to miss this. In Romans 1, we read, claiming to be wise, they became fools because they exchanged the glory of, of the immortal God for images. In other words, when we choose sin over God, we are pursuing the glory of worldly things rather than God. But the more we treasure God, the more we cherish God as our treasure, and the more we see that the world pales in comparison to Him, the more we will start to find sin less and less attractive. As long as we are still comparing God's way to the world's way to see which will give us more joy or more comfort, the longer we will struggle to make any real progress in our fight against partiality. But when we realize that there is no comparison, there is nothing that this world can offer that is comparable to the love of God, we will start to die to our old sinful ways and live for God. You see, God shows no distinction based on worldly achievements. And so ask yourself, do you value outer greatness or inner grace? Do you think more of people who have more? More money, more status, more power? Do you think less of people who have less, less achievements, less education, less fluency of speech? We've already seen in verse 4 that if we discriminate amongst people, we do so with evil thoughts and not with thoughts that conform to godly thinking because we're judging based on something other than conformity to Christ. And this isn't insignificant. It's not a tolerable thing in the eyes of God that we would attribute more or less respect based on someone's characteristics such as wealth or background. And yet it's so common in today's culture that we might just think that it's okay. In the example that we just read, we saw that somebody is saying to somebody, you sit there, and to another person, you sit over there. Now, we must remember that you might not actually be the one who determines who sits where. But remember that Jesus is concerned with our hearts. And he said that unrighteous anger and impure thoughts can be similar or the same as transgressing by actions such as murder. And so if any stage that you think that you are more worthy or less worthy, or you think of someone as more worthy or less worthy because of their wealth or their education or their background, even if you don't act on those thoughts, then you have shown favoritism and given glory to man rather than God. In, God's, in the world's eyes, it makes more sense to show honor um, and to show favoritism to people who are rich. But what we see in this example is that James shows us that God's kingdom works differently to the world. Moving on, we'll see in verse 5 that those who are deemed poor on earth are actually rich in faith. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters, has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? Now, James is not saying that all of the poor are rich in faith, and he's not saying that all of the rich don't have faith. He's also not saying that God despises the rich. But what he is saying is that earthly possessions and achievements are irrelevant in determining our eligibility for faith or entering the kingdom of heaven. It's not being rich or poor that matters. It's whether we love God. 
James writes that the kingdom of God was promised to those who love God. Anybody who loves God will inherit the kingdom. Because God rewards and honors people according to their faith and their conformity to Christ. They're not according to man-made attributes. And this is good news. It means that we don't have to measure ourselves by worldly standards. It means that we don't need to continue pursuing achievements or more things or more status or more success to make something of our lives. It means that if we want to get to the doors of heaven and hear Jesus say, well done, my good and faithful servant, then we need to focus on our character and our faith and our hearts. If you want a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light, then you shouldn't turn to more money or more power or more status, but rather to more obedience to the faith that we hold to. This is good news. It means that these are things that we can influence. You can't influence if you were born with access to good education or status or power or wealth, but you can influence how you live out your life where God has placed you. We can choose yes to say we can choose to say yes to God's kingdom and no to the world because the kingdom is promised to everybody who loves God. Although verse 5 clearly shows us that the kingdom is promised to everyone who loves God, the rest of the text as well as the rest of James and the Bible repeatedly warn us that our love of God is made difficult by riches, not impossible, but difficult. In verse 6 we read, But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And so in verses 6 to 7, we see three warnings against wealth, as well as the implication that if we show favoritism to the wealthy who are caught in sin, then we are collaborating with them in that sin. Firstly, we see that riches can be built on the exploitation of the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Riches and the pursuit of riches can lead us to using unjust ways to gain wealth. Secondly, we see that the rich are tempted to subject the poor to harsh treatment in the courts. Are they not the ones who are dragging you into the court? And the use of the word dragged here implies that it's not a cordial dispute between two parties, but rather a harsh action taken against an already needy person. And thirdly, we see that riches can blind us to seeing the glory of God and can lead some of us to blaspheming the name of Jesus and, and his glory in pursuit of worldly things and worldly value. Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? And so wealth is shown in these verses as having the potential to lead us to sin. And James is not alone in his assessment of wealth. He actually echoes, his, echoes Jesus' teaching. Because Jesus said it is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom. And because wealth can deceive us, I know that it's easy that we sometimes can take comfort in verses where we read about just the danger of the love of wealth or the love of riches. Such as in Timothy where we read the love of money is the root of all evil. In other words, oh, I have money, but the Bible warns against having a love of money, and I don't have that. But the words that Jesus said, it is very difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom, don't say that. They don't say it's difficult for a man who loves riches to enter the kingdom, but rather a rich man. And that's exactly the words that James is echoing here. He is warning us about the potential 
dangers that come from having wealth and not only the love of wealth. And I don't think that money is something that we can then just reflect on once in our lives to see, are we using this for God? Rather, it's something that I think we need to be continually aware and ask ourselves and understand that it has the potential to draw us away from God. And so we should regularly review our lives and ask ourselves if we are viewing God's money the way God views it and if we are using it for God's glory. Not from a place of I have this 10% that God wants me to give, but rather I joyfully live for God and for His purpose and His glory. And so I have the privilege of using everything that I have for His kingdom. And so we remember that the context of these verses that we read were about favoritism. So the point that James is making here is that showing favoritism to the rich who are caught in sin, in doing that, one is actually partaking in or facilitating the exploitation that the rich are undertaking. Showing favoritism to the unjust wealthy is the same thing as sharing in their exploitation of the poor, in their dragging of the poor into the courts, and in their blaspheming of the noble name that is associated with believers. James shows us that it is foolish to show favoritism to the very people that are oppressing the poor and blaspheming the name of Christ. Showing favoritism to the rich who are not rich in Christ means siding with someone and acting in opposition to God's way. And the good news is that in verses 8 to 9, we are pointed towards a rule that offers guidance on how we can avoid this favoritism. And that is to love everybody as ourselves. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing right. But if you show favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. And we know from Scripture that our neighbor is meant to resemble everyone. It's not a word that we use to reduce the amount of people that we need to love, but actually extends the meaning to all people. Instead of allowing us to say, okay, well, who is my neighbor so that I know who to love? Jesus has already illustrated that our neighbor is everyone. Christ's followers don't live by the world's standard, but by God's. And he's shown us a love far beyond anything we could ever imagine. A love that surpasses our understanding. And so we are called to show this love. And because we have a new heart, and because we've been born again, we find that we are drawn into showing this love. We find that our old ways of doing things become strange and unattractive, and the new way of God, the way of love, becomes more and more attractive in our natural inclination. Yes, we fail and fall short. We're not yet fully conformed to the image of God. But instead of our natural inclination being that of a closed heart towards God and man, it's that of being open, open with love and grace and kindness. As Christ follows, we have nothing to prove. There is no one in this world that we need to show favoritism to. Nobody. No matter how valuable they are in the eyes of this world, no matter what the repercussions may be, or what worldly possessions we, have, we may have to give up, or what worldly losses we may incur, we get to say with arms wide open to everybody, I truly love you. I love you as a brother or sister in Christ. I love you as somebody made in God's image. I don't need to look for respect or recognition because I live by a new law, a law of love. To end, James calls us to abandon partiality and to live 
with unconditional love. Importantly, we said that there is no sustainable motive outside of Christ that will lead us to being impartial. Because the world values achievements, money, power, fame. And so if we are trying to live by the world's way of doing these, doing these things, then we will value them too. If you're seeking a promotion, it's not the powerless person below you on the corporate ladder that you are going to be inclined to support, but rather the powerful superior who has the ability to promote you. But if you are seeking to live your life for God, you're not concerned with who has power or who is wealthy in the world's eyes because we love all of God's children equally and without reservation, the, God, the way that God loves us and the way that God loves them. It is only by yielding to God and surrendering everything to him that we can live out this law of love. Only if everything in this world is secondary and if God and living for him is primary can we start to go against the way of this world. It is only then that we can show equal honor to all people and value conformity to Christ and not conformity to any worldly standard of success. And so my goals at the start of this message were to show us that partiality is not in line with God's way of doing life. To place these verses in the context of James that shows us and emphasizes the necessity of a Christian belief being a lived belief. In other words, a belief that changes who we are and how we live. And to show us that the Bible is indispensable for instructing us on how we live. And so I hope that as we go out from here today, we can do so with a renewed sense of love and God's love. A renewed sense of holiness. A renewed sense of his love for us and for the world. And a renewed sense of the importance of scripture. Amen. I'm going to ask the band to come up as I pray. Jesus, we thank you that we get to come before you today. We thank you that you are more precious and more worthy of anything else in this whole world. We want to live for you and you alone, God. We don't want to value any worldly standard of success, but we want to surrender all of our ambitions and our desires that don't conform with you and your, your plans for our lives. And we want to say we are here for you and you alone. And as we do that, we pray that you would come into our lives and allow us to see everyone equally before you, God. May there be no trace of partiality or favoritism in the way we do things, but rather only unconditional love as we seek to love everybody the way that you love them. Amen.